how the whole place works. You know everybody and it, it all seems quite comfortable and then you find yourself in a new workplace feeling somewhat rattled by the flood of unfamiliarity. I mean, when people move house, especially if they, they move to a new neighbourhood, they enter a, a strongly liminal space. And this is why it's such a great time to invite people to come to church when they've just moved, because they're open. They're open, they're ready and open to explore new things, and they're open to meeting new people and forming new friendships. And of course, the death of a spouse leads one invariably into another deeply liminal space. For years afterwards, the question is asked, who am I now? Who am I now without this person who has been perpetually by my side? What do I do now that our future story, our future story together is forever changed? Well, today we find Jesus in what must have been for him a deeply liminal space. As we read through the gospel accounts, we discover him once again visiting Jerusalem for the festival of tabernacles, the, the celebration of God's presence with his people in the wilderness. They were led by him in the day by a pillar of cloud and then at night by a pillar of fire. During this festival, the, the moon is up before the sun sets, so there's, there's never a moment of real darkness. I mean, every courtyard was filled with oil lamps and people everywhere camped out all over Jerusalem. They remembered and celebrated God's care for them and his leading. I mean, there appears to have been lots of ministry for Jesus in and around Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them at this time that he is the light of the world and that whoever walks with him will never walk in darkness. And then suddenly he just seems to disappear. And we then find him and the disciples back up north in Galilee. The gospel accounts are, are strangely quiet about this journey north. They literally don't record anything about this time. It's as though Jesus wanted space to make his way home to the region where he grew up, to gather up his mother and all those who would make the final journey with him back south and up the mountain range again to Jerusalem for the, the final Passover celebration where he would give his own life as the final Lamb of God. Jesus was transitioning he knew that his time of earthly ministry was drawing to its climax. He, he knew where he was heading and he knew what it would mean for himself, for his followers and ultimately for all of us. This was a turning point. This was the lull before the mighty storm when sin and death would go their hardest against the Son of God. And it seems very likely that Jesus told his friends, go and catch up with your families, take some time out, and we'll meet together along the border between Galilee and Samaria before heading east, crossing the Jordan, and then making our way south, down through that Trans-Jordan region before crossing the Jordan again and then coming back up to Jerusalem. The locations for these events, and particularly the miracle that we're focusing on today, they are full of meaning. You see, they are literally walking on the fringes. 
They are walking through towns full of people on the fringe. They are living on the edge. You see, for the Samaritans, this was the furthest north you could go before you entered Israeli territory. And for those living in Galilee on the, on the western side of the lake, this was the furthest directly south you could go before you entered the territory of the Samaritan dogs. You see, the Jews always walked around this region. We, we know that from, from Luke chapter 9, that as Jesus was resolutely making his way to Jerusalem, he sent messengers ahead into a, a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, presumably for them to spend the night there. But the people in the village rejected him. They, they did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. And we know that following his last visit to Jerusalem, the religious leaders were looking to arrest him. I mean, he was essentially in hiding. And I can see why he was making his way through these fringy, outcast-filled towns on the border of Galilee and Samaria. I can also understand why he was gathering around himself a larger group to travel with him. I mean, reading between the lines, we can, we can imagine, I mean, we can almost see the group travelling together by those little lines, like where it says, Jesus took the twelve aside. So you think, well, there must be a larger group. And the fact that at this time, he sent out 72 in pairs to go ahead of him into all the other, the, the towns ahead as his kind of emissaries as he went. And so I can understand what he's doing here. There was quite a lot of people travelling with Jesus. So, so that is the, the backdrop to our passage today. This is the context for this rather unique miracle, the healing of the ten lepers. I say unique because it was truly unique in Israel's history. Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't know that until I did the research for this message. Lepers, it would seem, just didn't get healed. They were complete outcasts. They couldn't live in the vicinity of others. They had to rip their clothes as a sign that they were outcasts. They had to cover their upper lip and call out, unclean, unclean, unclean. I mean, life for lepers in the first century must have been truly dreadful. And they must have felt utter despair at their situation. I mean, to really understand the significance of, of leprosy in Jewish life, you've only got to look at the rules that they devised to protect themselves from ceremonial defilement by a leper. Now, get this. If, if you're upwind of a leper, right? So if the wind's blowing from behind your back and there's a leper there, you can come within two metres of the leper. But if you're on the other side, if you're downwind of the leper, you couldn't come within 30 metres of a leper, or you would be ceremonially defiled. I mean, you wouldn't want to risk a wind change, would you? <laughs> really, I mean, people just kept away from these people. People recoiled in horror from those with leprosy. And you know what? In all of Israel's history, there is not recorded a single Israelite healed of leprosy. 
who then went through the ceremonial cleansing in the temple and who was then restored to the community. These poor people had no hope. They had no hope. But they didn't really even have a single story from their scriptures to cling to. All they had was the extensive Levitical law found in chapters 13 and 14 of Leviticus. 1,500 years earlier, Moses gave them these unbelievably detailed instructions about what the priests were to do when a healed leper appeared at the temple. I mean, you check it out sometime. There is line after line after line, page after page of instructions about how to identify leprosy, how to separate the lepers from society, and then what to do if one of them claims to have been healed. But no one ever got healed. I mean, all they had was the story of Miriam, Moses' sister, who became white with leprosy when she spoke out against her brother Moses. The Lord afflicted her with leprosy. I mean, she was, she was white with it from head to toe. But Moses prayed for her forgiveness and the Lord graciously healed her. That, that was it. I mean, there's the story of General Naaman, who the prophet Elisha healed, found in 2 Kings 5. But he was a foreigner. He was a Gentile And he had no need to be cleansed by the priest. And we read in Luke 4, verse 27. Now, this is Jesus speaking, right? Jesus actually said, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So this is a big deal. right? This is a big deal. This is no ordinary miracle, as though there could be such a thing. But this miracle, the healing of not just one leper, but ten lepers, was really significant. Why was it significant? It was significant because Moses was the only person to pray for the healing of a leper and have them healed. And Moses said, right, now this is found in Deuteronomy 18. This is Moses' great sermon to the people of Israel when he gave them the Ten Commandments, okay? So if you're a Jew, this is the passage, right? This is the central passage of your scriptures leading up to the Ten Commandments, right? We read in in chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And a little further down, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. And get this, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Do you see, Israel, Israel were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for God's anointed one, the one who was the focus of all their hope. And one of the key signs of the Messiah would be that he would heal lepers, just like Moses did. So when Jesus healed the leper who came and knelt before him, recorded in Matthew 8, Luke 5, that was a big deal. You should remember 
Matthew records that this happens immediately after the Sermon on the Mount and Luke places his rendering immediately after the calling of the first disciples. So it all probably happened about the same time, right? Have a look at this passage. This is from Matthew 8. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand in front of everyone, there's a big crowd there, right? And touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Do you see, not only did Jesus reach out and intentionally touch a leper, that is, he intentionally made himself unclean in the eyes of the religious elite. But he did it without allowing the man to make a public fuss about it. That is, drawing too much attention to himself. He simply said, go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So this bloke's got to make him his way from wherever the Sermon on the Mount happened, probably up around the lake. You've got to make his way at least three days' walk down to Jerusalem. The whole process of assessment by the priest would have taken more than a week. And that's how long it took, the process laid down by Moses. And during that time, there would have been plenty of time for the word to spread amongst the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem. Have you heard? Have you heard there's a leper who reckons he's been healed? What? Only the prophet. Only the prophet to come. The Messiah will do that. There must be some mistake. We need to look into this carefully. So Jesus heals a leper early in his earthly ministry, boldly declaring to those who are kind of in the know, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And then just as he was transitioning into the final great chapter, as he was about to head south to Jerusalem to be crucified, ten men who had leprosy came to him. So let's turn to Luke 17. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village... Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no, no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. So, so these guys are living on the extreme outskirts of society. They are the least of the least. They live amongst those who are on the fringe and even there... They're on the out, right? And they call out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They appear to either know him or know something about him. I want you to notice, though, that they don't refer to Jesus as teacher, which would have been much more common. 
These guys call out epistata, which means master. The, the word, it only occurs six times in the New Testament. And it recognises Jesus' authority over all things. And it's always used in the context of the, of the, the supernatural. So interestingly, Jesus doesn't approach them or touch these guys, right, as he did the earlier man. He simply tells them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they did that, as they stepped out in obedience to the master's command, they were healed. You think about it. They, they must have looked down at themselves and each other and realised that suddenly, dramatically, they were changed. I mean, I did what we can do now so easily. You look up, go to Google and look up images of leprosy. People are grimacing, right? You're looking at the other guy's face. There's ten of them. You're looking at the other guy's face and suddenly he looks different. He looks changed. He looks cleansed. You're starting to look around. You're feeling your own face. The horrors of leprosy, the, the festering itchy patches which undoubtedly covered their faces, arms and legs were now healed. Their, their skin was clear. And amazingly, out of the ten, only one turned back to thank Jesus and to give glory to God. Have a look, this is verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. I mean, what was going on for the other men? I mean, were they so overcome with excitement about their healing that they simply forgot about Jesus? I mean, what were they thinking? I mean, leprosy today can be treated with a cocktail of drugs taken across a, a period of months. And you know, the numbers of people affected by leprosy has dropped dramatically worldwide over the last 20 years. We, we know so much more about this disease than ever. And what we call leprosy today was only a tiny portion of the, the kind of total gamut of skin conditions that the Bible gathers together under this term. Today, doctors would identify a whole range of conditions. However, for thousands of years, leprosy has been a dreaded scourge for humanity, especially in the ancient world of the first century. You know, I think leprosy provides for us an image of sin. And I think this is why the Bible uses it as it does. I think this is why we have Moses making such a big deal about it and including it in the law I mean, so many, many years earlier, and then nothing. No one gets healed. No one gets cleansed. No one gets restored to fellowship within the community, and no one with leprosy can worship God at the temple. They miss out on everything good. Sounds like hell on earth, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like hell on earth. Leprosy is just like sin, and sin is just like leprosy. It takes hold of us, and it doesn't let go. It's infectious. It spreads from one person to another. It's destructive. 
There are certain types of leprosy which destroy the nerve endings in fingers, toes and limbs, so people don't feel any pain. And as a result, body parts get so beat up and damaged that they literally just fall off. You know what the Apostle Paul tells us sin does? He says that sin burns, it it sears our conscience so that we no longer feel bad about sinning and we just sin more and more and more. Have you ever noticed this? We have this amazing God-given faculty called the conscience. When we do something that crosses our moral baseline, right? we, we feel bad about it. And hopefully, we respond and we change our behaviour. We stop doing whatever we just did that caused our conscience to kick in. But if you keep doing that thing that made you feel bad the first time you did it, right? you, you crossed your baseline, it, it kicked your conscience in, if you keep doing it, you know what it does? It just pushes the baseline down and down and down so that our behaviour no longer crosses our baseline, our moral baseline. Our conscience doesn't kick in. You just keep on pushing it down and down and down and we suddenly find that we're doing things like lying all the time and we're stealing or we're committing adultery or whatever. You just keep on pushing your baseline down and down and down. And after a while, you just don't feel bad about it. You see, you've normalised your sinful behaviour. You've seared your conscience. It doesn't stop you doing the destructive behaviour. Your life and those around about you are still damaged and hurt. You just don't feel bad about it, that's all. Just like lepers who can't feel pain anymore. Eventually they just damage themselves so much that their fingers and toes fall off. Leprosy is just like sin and sin is just like leprosy. You know, over time, leprosy destroys the person. And that's exactly what sin does in our life. It eventually covers the person from head to toe. It causes isolation. It separates the person from others and from God. You know, these 10 lepers are representatives of all humanity. They ask for healing and Jesus willingly cleanses them. He blesses them. But I want you to notice they are not made whole. They are not made well. Luke carefully uses a different word for the Samaritan leper who returned to praise God. The word he uses for him means saved. It indicates a a complete action which is unalterable. I think this miracle teaches us a whole heap of things. On the whole, it, it points to Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one true Israelite, the focus of all the promises of God. All of those promises made to David in the Old Testament, focus in Jesus. It points to him as the one who will not only heal lepers, but ultimately as the one who heals sin and death once and for all. You know, I I think this miracle teaches, clearly it teaches the ineffectual nature of miracles in turning people back to God. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, if there is a God, if there is a God up there, why doesn't he just heal all the sick people? Why doesn't he do some powerful stuff? I mean, why doesn't he perform perform some miracles 
and then we'd all believe in him. But they wouldn't, would they? Because we'd all be just like the nine lepers who were cleansed. Because you know what? Miracles surround us. Miracles surround us, but people do not give glory to God. You know, our earth, our earth in the midst of space is an unquestionable miracle. I mean, certainly compared to the other planets we visited, the earth is a stunning miracle, isn't it? Overflowing with beauty and majesty and ever-increasing wonder and diversity. This week, I thought about the moon and the miracle it is. Can you imagine a world without the moon? Can you imagine how dark it would be at night without the moon? You know, if you, if you read what the historians say about what it was like to live a bit over 100 years ago, I remember Geoffrey Blaney saying, you would never organise to go out without looking at the lunar chart. You kind of made sure if you had a 21st birthday party or, or something you had to go to and you had to travel, particularly at night through the bush or something, you'd kind of want to do it on a night when the moon was up. So can you imagine a world without the moon? Can you imagine a world without tides? I mean, it would be a stinking, rotting mess. Have you ever wondered about the fact that the moon and the sun appear to us on the earth, so exactly the same size that we can have things like a total eclipse. I mean, the moon's orbit is elliptical, so there's some times when we get an eclipse where it's slightly smaller than the sun, and then you get that ring. But have you ever thought about the chances of the moon being the same size as the sun? You, know, you go to Google and you ask the question, what's the chances of that? And they come back with the why. There's lots of people that go, I know why. Yeah, we all know why, don't we? Because the sun is 400 times the diameter of the moon and it just happens to be about 400 times further away. That's why. But that's got nothing to do with the chances of that happening. When you ask that question, people just say, oh, no, it's too big to even begin to calculate. The chances of that happening... Miracles surround us. You know, we were at band practice on Thursday night and Beck was there and you're playing, playing flute. Now, Beck's about to have a baby. And having been there for the birth of four babies, I know there's billions of babies born. But when you're there, it's a flaming miracle, isn't it? You just go, another person just is here. And it hits you, it's like... Wow, God did an amazing thing when he created life. And the fact that we can create other life. I mean, miracles absolutely surround us. Can you imagine a world where we couldn't make glass? I mean, suddenly, you know, I, when I studied design, I remember reading this article, it was just saying, the chances of us discovering how to make glass again are very, very low. Because you know how you make glass? You, you, you make glass out of sand. The, the two don't look alike, do they? You can't imagine someone going, let's turn this stuff into this stuff. You know, chance favours the prepared mind. Somehow it happened and someone went, hang on a minute. 
but they reckon the chances of that happening again are incredibly low. Can you imagine a world without glass? I mean, you can't make lenses, you can't make microscopes. Suddenly we don't discover microbiology and all the effects that that has on chemistry as well. And then suddenly we have a world without penicillin and thousands and thousands of other miracle-working drugs in God's good earth. The miracle of glass is astounding when you start to think about it. Miracles surround us. But billions of people don't give glory to God. See, just like the nine lepers who walked away cleansed, but not made whole. So the question for us today, I think as we head into Easter celebrations, I think it's the biggest, most important question that you'll ever be asked. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to the miracle of the incarnation? I mean, nothing comes close to that, does it? How do you get the infinite God who fills the universe like we fill our body into a single cell and pop him in a mother's womb and grow him into a human? So he can be one of us. So he can restore us to relationship. That's the biggest miracle of all, isn't it? It's just staggering when you think about it. So how will you respond to the miracle of the resurrection and the offer of eternal unchangeable healing, the offer of eternal life? Will you be like the nine lepers who called out for help? And the master responded immediately, powerfully, effectively, and yet they just walked away. Or will you be like the one Samaritan leper, the foreigner, the Gentile, who saw the truth of what had just happened, who returned to Jesus and gave God all the glory and as a result found eternal salvation and wholeness forever in Jesus. Let's pray together. We're going to have our offering collected during the last song, so we'll pray for that as well. Lord God, it's been good to gather around your word today and to, to hear this little story of this miracle that you recorded so long ago on the fringes in that liminal space. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would see your glory, see the wonder of the miracle of the incarnation and the resurrection. Uh, what that means for us. Lord, open our eyes to the miracles all around us. And Lord, as we bring now our gifts and tithes and offerings, Lord, we pray that they would come from glad and thankful hearts and that you would bless this money, that you would use this money to further your kingdom because that's what you do so well. You take the little bit we give and you make lots of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.